Does anybody think that we might be back to the boom years? Maybe the market will pick up and start growing at the rate of inflation or something like that. But that's about the best that any responsible forecaster is predicting. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Tuesday, May 31st, and that was Robert Schiller you heard at the top talking about the housing market. Today we have a deep read with Farid Zakaria about his book, The Post-American World, version 2.0. But first, we're going to go to our Planet Money indicator from Jacob Goldstein. Jacob, what do you got for us? Today's Planet Money indicator is 2002. U.S. home prices, they've now fallen all the way to where they were back in 2002. That's according to the Case-Shiller home price numbers that came out today. The numbers were for March, and what they showed is that U.S. home prices actually hit a new post-bubble low. And remember now, it's been five years since home prices peaked. So really, this is quite a long, long housing bust that we're still living through. Yeah, that's crazy. Five years of falling. And I, I felt like for some part of that five years, I would tell people, well, home prices are still up for the bubble years. Right, and right. now we can't say that anymore. No, it's not like, oh, a little bit of the bubble got washed out. It's like the bubble is gone. It's completely gone. And we talk a lot about housing, even though the entire Planet Money team lives in New York City, which means none of us own homes. So it's all a very abstract, theoretical... <laughs> it's this idea that in America, ordinary people buy houses and you don't have to be rich. I'm not convinced, but people tell it's me that's said, true. Yeah. yeah. But this crisis, this financial crisis, it was both caused by and led to problems far beyond the housing crisis. But the the joblessness people are experiencing, the general tepid nature of this recovery, the slow, non-robust recovery, it's still, at least in part, a result of this housing market not hitting bottom, right? Yeah. The housing market is a huge drag, and it looks like it's going to stay bad for a while yet. You know, a key part of the problem in the housing market is all the foreclosures. There's still a ton of foreclosed homes coming into the pipeline. Lots of people who aren't in foreclosure still owe more on their mortgage than their home is worth. So it's really hard to see right now where the end of the housing bust is. And the result of that is people either who are in foreclosure or just their home is not worth that much because their neighbors are in foreclosure. They feel less rich. They're less likely to buy stuff. The companies that they would have bought stuff from are not hiring people, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, even if you own your home outright, the drag on the housing market can still really affect the way you feel about your own wealth and your own spending. Well, Jacob, that was a classically depressing Planet Money indicator. I'd like to thank you. Yeah, bad from top to bottom. My pleasure. Thanks, Jacob. So, David, remember that summer of 2008 before the financial crisis started when we were, like, planning this financial economic reporting thing that didn't even have a name yet? Yeah, we tried to write down, like, ideas of things we thought were important that we should cover. And the main thing we talked about was this one question. Is China going to eat our lunch? And what does that mean? At that time, China, I believe, was still the third largest economy in the world. But people were talking about how it was going to grow and grow and eventually be larger than the U.S. economy. And what does that mean? We thought that would be the central question of what has become planet money. We're getting back to it now. Yeah, exactly. Better late than never. So we're going to bring you a lot of perspectives on this. We have brought you, you know, Ian Bremmer and others. We've, we've talked about this with a variety of people. Today, one of the leading public intellectuals on this kind of thing, Fareed Zakaria. He has, of course, his show on CNN. Zakar what is it? GPS? <laughs> GPS. Fareed Zakaria's GPS yes. something public affairs. Exactly. <laughs> 
So he came in the other day, and we had a really good talk. Yeah, he recently updated his book, The Post-American World, which was a New York Times bestseller. And in the book, he argues that the story historians will tell about today is not really about the United States. It's about the rise of the rest. Already, he points out the world's tallest building, for instance, is in Dubai. The largest publicly traded company is in Beijing. The largest investment fund is in Abu Dhabi. The biggest movie industry is not Hollywood. It's Bollywood in India. And he says, we're not at the beginning of this shift from a world dominated by the U.S. and Europe. It's been happening for a long time, for decades now. Basically, the West had the secret sauce for economic growth for three, four centuries. The West becomes rich and it dominates the world economically, politically. And it's all because the, the West had the sort of secret sauce. And the secret sauce was capitalism, rule of law, individual rights, um, science, technology, education. And then what starts to happen is after, you know, a few hundred years, people around the world start saying, wait a minute, maybe we can do things like that. And the Japanese are the first ones to do this in the, in the late 19th century. And Japan becomes the first non-Western country to adopt Western methods uh, and starts getting Western levels of prosperity. And then the, the South Koreans and the Taiwanese, the Singaporeans, the Hong Kong guys – they look at Japan and they say, wait a minute, we can do the same thing Japan is doing. So Japan, so they start growing, the Asian tigers. Then you begin to see other Asian countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, and then, of course, China, India. And by the time China and India adopt these practices, the people in Latin America have realized that this is what's happening. People in Africa have realized what's happening. And so what you see is a, a very broad trend. In 1979, the number of countries that were growing at 3% a year or more was 31 the number of countries growing at 3% or year or more in 2007 before the crash was 124. Even today, it's 85 after the financial crisis. So what I'm trying to say, is this is a very broad upward trend of catch-up that the rest of the world is playing with America. I very much doubt it's going to disappear in the next five years. Clearly, people are afraid of China. China's rising. China's rising. What does that mean? What's the, the timeline for China's rise and what are going to be some of the key milestones to look out for in the coming years? Well, look, this is a huge historical process that b began really 30 years ago. But what's worth pointing out, the financial crisis has powerfully accelerated the rise of China. Because what has the financial crisis done? It has depressed growth rates in the Western world. But China's growth hasn't changed that much. It maybe has gone down from 9.5% to 8.5%. Still very powerful growth. The net effect of that is that the date that China overtakes the United States uh, as the largest economy in the world, it's now probably going to happen in the next 5 to 10 years. But the trick isn't for them to be the biggest economy because they have a population four times the size of us. The, the trick is for them to have GDP per capita as big as ours. And that, I mean, that, that's got to be 50 years away. Right? That's that, a long way away. And yeah. I don't even know if it'll ever happen. But the truth is because of the power of numbers, they don't have to do that. India is at $1,800 per capita GDP right now. Could it keep doing what it's doing and get to $4,000 or $5,000 per capita GDP, which would still make it, by the way, I mean, poorer than Brazil, poorer than Argentina. On a per capita basis. On a per capita. Yeah. But it would still mean the, the tripling, quadrupling of the size of the Indian economy. Uh, could China continue to go the way it's doing? You know, can, can it just keep making cheap toys and, and triple its, uh, its per capita GDP? Yeah, it would then end up still poorer than Korea. 
But because you're multiplying everything by 1.5 billion people, it becomes a big, big number. But aggregate power does matter. It has an impact on for example, how important you are in world bodies like the World Trading Organization, the IMF, the World Bank. If you are the largest economy in the world, even if it's because you have a lot of people, it has a, it makes a difference. It means you can buy a lot more weapons, for example. It means your market becomes the largest market in the world. I was talking to, I was in Hollywood a couple of weeks ago, talking to movie producers, and they are resigned to the fact that China is going to be the largest movie market in the world by far, and that that is going to fundamentally change the way in which American movie makers think about themselves, the, the, the place they occupy in the kind of global landscape, and it'll fundamentally change the terms they, they are going to get. They're used to getting very good terms when they go to foreign countries. And the Chinese say to them, no, no, no. When you come to China, you play by our rules because you need us a lot more than we need you. Yeah, Adam Posen told us on a Planet Money podcast, the, the economist Adam Posen, that Probably our kids will watch a lot of Chinese sitcoms and Chinese TV shows that in 20 years they'll be exporting culture to us perhaps. But he says that'll be better. You'll have a lot of people in China working on the world's problems, creating better television for us. You know, I mean. Oh, no, I'm fundamentally very optimistic about this because it means a massive expansion of global GDP. It means more people, exactly, hundreds of millions more people investing, buying, consuming, imagining, painting, uh, solving the world's problems. Uh, it means more energy and attention to all kinds of issues and problems, and it means more products for us to consume if you want to look, look at it at, at that crass level. So at a, in a kind of aggregate level, clearly it's going to be good for the world. The problem I really worry about, and here is where I think there is something to be worried about. There, there is a huge crisis of employment in America, in the Western world in general, uh, and that is related to the rise of China. It's related to the rise of the emerging markets. It's related to globalization. It's also related to technology. But all these things are happening at the same time. So if you look at what is happening to the American economy, we have recovered our pre-crisis GDP. We're back to about um, $13.5 trillion, which is where we were in 2007, but with 7 million fewer workers. And actually, if you count the part-time and the people who've stopped looking, with actually probably more like 20 million fewer workers. So we've achieved extraordinary productivity because a lot of those jobs have gone to India, China, Indonesia. A lot of it has gone to technology. In that sense, the relentless rise of emerging markets like China, like India, it makes it very difficult to see how uh, somebody without an advanced degree, somebody who does simple stuff, how that person finds a secure career path with rising standards of living. That is a huge challenge for America. Right now, the majority of people who are getting work, even now, um, as joblessness begins to, to, to beat around, something like 75% are finding part-time work with a median income of $19,000. That is half the U.S. median income. That's not a real job. And, and the rise of China is very much an important part of that problem. Yeah, that's something we're paying a lot of attention to here because it's it's not just the inequality in America that the rich are richer than the poor. I mean, that, that's always been the case, although maybe more so now than ever before. But in absolute terms, for the first time in American history, we have now going into two generations of, of large numbers of Americans who are actually losing ground over the course of their life. Now, our take on it is generally China's overblamed for that problem, that technology plays a larger role than trade does. But 
China certainly plays a role in. in I would I would argue the two are now so closely related that it's a little difficult to tell. My general uh, impression is that you're right. You can't quite see the. Uh, the, the way in which – I mean, nobody has administration anymore in the United States. People who, we, people who used to have secretaries, now there's a, one secretary for 20 people. Uh, and that's all because of technology. So, but it's difficult to visualize. It's much easier to visualize the, uh, the outsourcing plant in, in India. But the truth of the matter is it's the combination of the two that's, that's driving it. And both are happening at warp speed. So I, I think right now – College-educated professional people in America surf this this tide of globalization and technology we're describing, and they will do well because there'll be all kinds of advantages you can imagine. But what about the guy who w- went to the two-year, you know, the two-year college? Good person, works hard, but his world is doing something simple and repetitive, and all those jobs are either going into a computer or going. To, to India, China, uh, South Africa, Indonesia. And that's, that's where the post-American world doesn't look as, as pretty. Now, you can't turn it off. So I want to emphasize, I don't mean by that, therefore, protectionism. Therefore, you, you can't, I mean, this is just one of the challenges we have to adapt to rather than hoping that somehow you can turn this world off. I think that is why people find the rise of China so... Uh uh, why well, they feel uneasy about it. it. One of the reasons why China is poised to have the largest economy in the world uh, faster than we thought is because uh, they're continuing to grow. But the other reason is because we stumbled. And I think part of the unease is people looking around thinking, maybe things are not going to always get better here. You know, Maybe things will feel worse or maybe our education system's collapsing or maybe there are going to be a lot, a lot of people at a you know particular strata of, uh, of the U.S. economy who aren't going to have satisfying job. I agree with you. I think, I think you know, China was growing during the Clinton years and people didn't worry. And I don't mean to personalize or politicize this, but I mean, when you're growing well, when things seem to be going well, you see the win-win. When things aren't going so well, you look around for people to blame and you look around for things to worry and get scared about. Uh, I, I think that China is not a threat, but it is a challenge. And adapting to it is really hard work. And it means fixing our education system, Figuring out what the hell we do about healthcare costs that are on average twice what they are in the rest of the industrialized world uh, at a time when you're going to have double the number of people on Medicare and Social Security. That is effectively uh, burdens on the state. Uh, these are huge challenges, and I don't see any sign that we are coming up with creative solutions to this. And so I think there is this great public anxiety that you know maybe we're going to end up in a situation where we'll be okay. But it's hard to see how you become the growth engine of the world uh, with an education system the kind we have, with a you know, public retirement problem the kind we have. And those are real concerns. We could end up with islands of excellence. You know, think of California as a metaphor. California has the, best, the most dazzling private sector in the world, really. If you think about Silicon Valley plus Hollywood plus all these things that, that spawn from it, it's amazing. And yet, when the state is collapsing, when your infrastructure is collapsing, when you build more prisons than you do college campuses, which California has now done for 25 years, after a while, it becomes very difficult to be a viable economy. Can you take us to, you know, the U.S. the day China, China's economy is bigger in, in absolute terms, maybe not per capita terms? What, 
how does the average American feel different in, in that universe? Look, we'll still be the single most important country in the world for a long time, even when that happens. You know, power is a composite. You have economic power, financial power, military power, political power, and we are probably the only country in the world that has the combined portfolio of power. And uh, we should say, militarily, we are many, many more decades ahead of China oh, than... Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, I mean, militarily, yeah. we still basically spend more than the rest of the world put together. There's an interesting question of whether we need to spend more than the rest of the world put together, but we do. I think that what what it will symbolize is this world I'm trying to describe in the book, which is, yes, we will be the single most important country in the world, but we will have to share power with a whole lot of others. We will have to recognize that we just don't we, we can't set the standards. We can't set the agenda. We can't uh, set the rules. The Brazilian foreign minister said to me when explaining Brazil's new assertive foreign policy, he said, look, it's very simple. The United States used to account to be the single largest market for us. That was all we cared about. He said, right now, actually, China is the largest market. But more importantly, he said, we, have, we sell a lot to America. We sell a lot to China. We sell a lot to the European Union. We worry about all and of And we have them. a lot more people within Brazil who are buying stuff. Precisely. So it, that's the new world. It's, it's, that's why I call it post-American, because it's not a Chinese world. But there's no way China, China doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the political ideas. It doesn't have the, the, the capacity to think of itself. Nobody in the world is sitting there thinking about the Chinese dream. You know, no, nobody in Asia, I can tell you for sure, is thinking to themselves, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have a more powerful China? That's not it. But it's that the United States, which had the kind of, uh, which had this unrivaled period in history, it's never really existed before. That period is over. I think there's a long and a short way to ask this question. I think the, the long way is is I think a, a lot of people living in the Western world feel privileged to be living the way we live. We would very much like everyone to be able to live that way. But there's also this feeling that the way we live is if everyone were to live that way, it's unclear what the impact on the, the planet would be. Um, I mean, you talk about sort of inexorable upward GDP growth. Uh, one of the things that goes along with that is um, – is greenhouse gas emissions. So the short way is climate change, you know, to ask this question. What what do you think about that? I think you're, you're right. It's not it's not unclear what the effect would be. It would be disastrous. The effect of every – if as many Chinese-owned cars as Americans in a you know, percentage terms, it would be absolutely disastrous. I think you'd be talking about, I don't know, 25 times as many cars as there are in the world right now if China, if China and India um, had the same per capita – um, car, car ownership, and you read about like two new coal plants a week or something. Right, you know, I don't right, know exactly. It's roughly speaking, the Chinese and the Indians are building a coal-fired power plant every week, and the combined emissions from those coal, those new coal-fired power plants, essentially wipes out all the savings of the Kyoto Accords, if they were actually implemented, which they're not being. I would say my only. At some level, this is sort of above my pay grade because if if this physics of climate change is right, it seems to me some of some substantial part of it is already baked in. Uh, you know, in other words, and short of a massive continuing global recession, which is what it would take to to slow down growth, which would then slow down CO two emissions, we're on a pretty unsustainable path. So, as far as I can tell, we have to hope that the solution will be what it has been ever since the 17th century, which is that we come up with new technology, uh, and the new technology allows us to consume infinite amounts of energy with, with almost no effect in terms of uh, greenhouse gases. I don't see how 
tinkering and moderating um, our CO2 emissions here and there in the face of what you just said, which is a China and an India that are just putting out coal-fired power plants, burning wood, uh, uh, owning cars. With all that stuff happening, we can drive all the Priuses we want and have all those curly light bulbs we want. It's going to make no difference. So ultimately, the only answer to your question is if we cannot figure out a way to consume lots of energy uh, without having a negative impact on the planet, we are, the growth is not sustainable. And it's not sustainable in a very fundamental way, which means life on the planet Earth will end. I mean, it's a very ugly type of economic problem because the consequences are hundred or hundreds of years in the future. There's some uncertainty about their magnitude. Everyone has an incentive to sort of cheat and not really work on the problem that hard. You see, you know, China right now, they're more interested in, in growing quickly. Um, you know, and, and what if the technology, you know, the periodic table is finite, right? I was a physicist. You know, like it, it may be that there is no cheap way to do so well, power, I mean, you know, um, I, mean, I guess I'm, 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 yeah, it is scary. I'm an optimist. Look, but when when Thomas Malthus wrote his uh, his his tract in the 18th century, he, he was right. I mean, the math he did was quite right. That if you looked at the way population was growing and you looked at the way food production was growing, there was no way you were going to be able to make make feed people. People were going to starve. What he didn't take into account is that under that pressure. We invented, in a sense, the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution. And in fact, what you were able to do on much smaller plots of land with many fewer people, you were able to feed many, many more people. So I think that when you look at photovoltaics, solar technology, and things like that, you don't need to bend the laws of physics or chemistry to imagine the possibility of harnessing the the, the power of the sun, for example, which is probably in the long run the most powerful uh, a possible idea. The problem is we need it to happen pretty fast. And these kind of game-changing technologies don't usually, you know, you, they don't come on your schedule. Right. I mean, is it scary to you to basically be driving on a road where it's not paved? It doesn't exist like three feet in front of the car? I mean, that's sort of what we're doing. Yeah, it's not, not quite three feet, but maybe 30 feet. Yeah, it does. Look, um, when I look at this growth, you're right. There's a part of me that just looks at it and marvels. You know, I grew up seeing my father was a politician in India. So I grew up seeing a lot of rural poverty in India, which is just heartbreaking. I mean, people are living like they did in the Middle Ages. They're, they're sleeping with cattle. They're, the, the levels of disease and, and, and poverty, particularly for children, is just heartbreaking. But then you think about what is so wonderful for them is the ability to have a refrigerator, to have a scooter, to uh, live in a house with electricity. But the combined of impact of that is is precisely what you say, which is very, very difficult to imagine how that process continues uninterrupted without a, without a serious effect. But, you know, you go to Silicon Valley and you talk to people who are dealing with the, the, the sort of invention side of this, and they're quite bullish. They feel like it's not I let a hundred flowers bloom, it's let a million flowers bloom. There are a million different ideas out there, and some of these will come to fruition, and some of them will be, be scaled. Uh, and, you know, maybe as I say, that's why I'm, I'm something of an optimist, but I'm an optimist in general. Please let us know, are you afraid? Are you glad that China's growing? Do you wish it wouldn't grow so much? You can send us emails to planetmoney at npr.org or leave us a note on our blog, npr.org slash money. 
or on Facebook or Twitter. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. 